0: Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. One of my first questions for Letitia Clark, author of the stunning book, Bitter Honey, was this. How should I classify your book? It is, of course, a cookbook full of recipes that Letitia discovered when she moved from London to the remote gem of an island, Sardinia. But Letitia agrees the book is more, part memoir, part story, and part manifesto about a way of life and eating that is all but foreign to most of us. After that, my aim was simply to ask Letitia questions that I couldn't answer from reading Bitter Honey, which I loved so much that I devoured it from cover to cover in one evening. The result is a meandering but stimulating conversation between topics of home, self-doubt, the necessity of transparency when women seek to empower other women, and the definition of authenticity, both in and out of every kitchen. Speaking of Sardinia right off the bat, being old-fashioned is not such a bad thing, is it? (laughs) Exactly. I
1: think, yeah, it's probably one of the reasons I like it here so much is because I am pretty old-fashioned by nature Mm.
0: anyway it's such a uh an old world
1: yeah it's got an amazing history and preservation of culture and all kinds of very ancient methods and traditions and everything is very important which is really nice and one of the things that makes it very sort of unique and special I think and one of the things that has only been possible because it is an island so it you know it's Mm. quite it's naturally isolated anyway. So it's sort of easier to preserve these things. But Sardinian people are very proud as well. So it's sort of part of their culture that they really celebrate these traditions and customs as well.
0: Mm, Right. They're not about to let it die. That would too much of a blow to their identity.
1: Well, I think it's, you know, it's the same with everywhere. The sort of younger generation are not necessarily that interested in, in preserving a lot of the Older methods and techniques, but because the population is mostly still a bit older, those things still happen and are still made in a certain way, but definitely kind of the the emerging... Generation now are all moving abroad anyway, because there's not really much work in, in Sardinia for them. So, I mean, it's, it's a kind of cultural phenomenon all over Europe because financial crisis and everything. A lot of young people leave their homes and go and look for work in London or in Rome or, you know, the sort of capital cities. So it's right. there's a lot of pride still. And I think even when young people move away, they become more aware of this amazing cultural heritage that they have and then they want to, when they come back to Sardinia, a lot of people open things or do things that then promote those, that that sort of heritage. So it it does
0: have sort of ups and downs, definitely. Mm, mm, It's cyclical. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Well, you kind of already given me a new perspective <laughs> on your book, or honey, because I mentioned last night that I actually did read it cover to cover, which I rarely do. That
1: was nice to hear. I like to get
0: that. <laughs> and actually, I was chauffeuring my teenagers around quite a bit yesterday, and my oldest son read quite a bit of the book. He was and was bookmarking recipes that we could try. Um, uh-huh. That's really nice. So, you have kind of, I feel, given this gift to the world, certainly to me and to my family. But I guess I'm just realizing now what a gift this book is probably in many ways as the years go on to Sardinians as well, because it is such so much more than a compilation of recipes. Well, it's a bit of a memoir about you. It's a discussion about a way of life. It's an explanation, I think, in some ways of agriculture and history. I learned about new new produce you you know so I guess my first question is how do you classify this book have do you when you talk about my book do you say my cookbook or do you feel that it's something so much more than that
1: um well it's actually it's a really interesting question because no one has asked me that before like Mm. no one has how would you classify this book which um is a shame because it's a it's a good question and it's a question Mm. that I would like to think about the answer to um so I'm glad that you asked me and I think anyone that writes is always primarily a reader. I think, you know, before you write you have to be a reader. You have to love reading. You have to read a lot. You have to, Mm. you know, feel inspired by other books. And I think and I've never just read cookbooks, but cookbooks Mm. sort of became the books that I read the most of once I started cooking and professionally. And it was always the cookbooks that had a story behind them became the ones that were most meaningful to me because I wanted them to be a kind of book which could travel from the kitchen into the bedroom, back to the beach or, you know, yes. on the, on my veranda, on holiday. Like I wanted it to be a book that I could read anywhere, anytime and that I could find solace and inspiration and fascinating things sort of idiosyncrasies and and (laughs) just information and everything that a book should provide this sort of broad spectrum of things when I started Bitter Honey I wanted to tick all of those sort of boxes because I think one of the wonderful things about food is that it is this sort of metaphor for life because food isn't just food obviously I mean food is about people and families and traditions and um, travel and culture and heritage and so many other things and I just think that was something that I really wanted to to get across so to classify it (laughs) in one word or in two words is you know it's pretty hard but I think I have actually written on the notes because I printed out the questions that you sent me and I've Mm -hmm. written it's a it's a sort of part memoir, as you say, it's part story, it's part manifesto, if I could say that without sounding horribly pretentious, but Mm. um, I wanted to be, to sort of put across this idea of eating and and cooking that was, you know, based on simplicity and this idea that you don't need to be hugely wealthy or to have access to all these exotic ingredients to create something really delicious for yourself or for your family. So in that Mm. sense, it is, So it's kind of memoir, story, manifesto, cookbook.
0: That's what Mm, it is. I love that. (laughs) Yes, and I I wouldn't have said manifesto because I think of that word as militant and aggressive. And there's nothing militant and aggressive about your point of view. It's actually very inviting. You invite (laughs) us to a point of view. um, Yeah, that's interesting.
1: I guess you're right. Yeah, manifesto. It does have a sort of political... (laughs) <laughs> and of not exactly yeah, what I'm going for, but you're right. Yeah. No.
0: Well, but I think that you accomplished your goal because I absolutely walked away with this. <laughs> in fact, I added questions in this morning about how do we accomplish here, how do we accomplish this way of life that you have made seem so superior <laughs> and wonderful and inviting. And the other way I think that you are very successful in your book, the other thing that you bring in is it's certainly not a novel, but the way that you introduce us to the characters, I feel that I know them a little bit and I feel intrigued by them. I just read last <laughs> night of Great Aunt Teresa um, <laughs> who was oh, jilted yes. at the author. <laughs> and I think she could have a book all her own, you know? I think you could do spin off books from this. <laughs> yeah, no, she's a brilliant character. And
1: I think that was, yeah, that was one of the things... Because like I said, in the sort of last response, you know, food is so much about people and recipes come from people. And I think that, you know, the people that give you the recipes and, and the reasons that they do the things the way they do and they cook the things that they cook. And there's so much kind of backstory behind everything that, you know, I have recipes that my grandmother wrote out by hand when, you know, that I keep just as sort of bits of inspiration that I might use in a book one day, because the way that she writes things and you know, my grandmother was the person that inspired me to cook in the first place. She was kind of my, my biggest inspiration. And I've got a recipe of hers written out that is stuck on my desk. And it's she was terribly dysre- dyslexic, which was a real mm-hmm. shame because I think that she would have been a writer. She had this brilliant imagination and a really mm-hmm. great sense of kind of humor. and But she couldn't write properly because, you know, she, she was very dyslexic and very embarrassed about being dyslexic because back then it wasn't really something that sort of people people were aware of or that you could do things to help with so but she's written this recipe for this very retro shrimp mousse and she's written it shrimp mouse and I just think it's Mm. a a, a sweet thing but it just reminds me so much of her and just but yeah so I think the characters that I met here in and being part of Luca's family and you know one of the greatest things well I mean lots of Italians would say it's also you know a negative thing but it's mostly Mm. a very positive the thing that Italian culture is you know that there is so much importance placed on the family it's something that I think a lot of the kind of maybe American culture and English culture has lost quite a lot that you, you have this closeness to your grandparents and your aunts and your cousins and your uncles and I mean I know my family sort of English family we really don't you know I see my cousins once every 10 years or something but mm. like Luca's family you you know you have every Sunday with the big family and then it's just a completely kind of different culture so Mm-hmm. I wanted to include those characters as well because the sort of family aspect is so important to Italian life.
0: You captured it wonderfully. It's, so, as I was coming up with questions, I really didn't want to ask anything that people could read in the book, mainly because, really, in a way, what value would that bring to them, you know? But just because it's such a fascinating title drew my attention and because the story behind it is so interesting do you mind just sharing why you chose the title bitter honey
1: yeah so I think um because obviously I think anyone that cooks you know is passionate about cooking well you then become passionate about produce as well because you realize mm-hmm. that the things that you're working with obviously are just as important as the things that you may anyone that loves cooking gets geeky I guess about produce and <laughs> One of the first things that I looked into when I moved to Sardinia was the sort of specific products, you know, that were just made in Sardinia that would be interesting to find or to try or to write about. So, you know, I was looking into things like butaga and um, the special cheeses that are made here, all the pecorinos and things. And then I found this sort of website that was talking about this bitter honey. And it's really, really unusual. And I think it's only made in Sardinia in Corsica, which which is literally just next door to Sardinia. I just thought it was such an amazing sounding product. Just I then saw the trees, you see these amazing little red berries, which are a product of the tree, which the honey is made from. And it's it's a really beautiful tree and it grows wild everywhere, which is kind of amazing. And and the honey itself has this extraordinary flavour, which is sort of initially very sweet, obviously like every honey, but then this sort of backnote of bitterness. It was a really fascinating product and it was a very great summary of Sardinia in itself and also a kind of metaphor for life, you know, that there is yeah. sweet and bitter in life and what, one doesn't exist without the other and, and the, you know, that having the existence of the bitterness makes the sweetness sweeter. And I love also the prevalence of bitter flavors in Italian cooking and Italian drinks and, you know, Campari and all of that stuff. It just came to me as the kind of perfect title.
0: Well, I think it's fascinating. I think it's part of the allure of the book. I hope so. Yeah, I hope it's, it's
1: funny because I it kind of chimed with a lot of books that I'd read about Italy previously. There's a book by an English food writer called Sweet Honey Bitter Lemons, which is about him driving around Sicily on a Vespa, I think. So I liked that it was sort of a, a mirror of that as well, because that had been one of my favorite books
0: it's another reminder that everything about this book is so personal. It really is almost written like a letter from you. You really get your voice very clearly. Um, So I appreciate that about the book. And I think it comes through at the very beginning on the title so well done <laughs>
1: thank you that's really like it's so nice to hear because that's really what I want it's funny because I when I worked in kitchens as a chef I was always getting told off and my head chefs would always say don't take it personally like you take everything so personally and I would always be like but you know being personal is a good thing like it's good to feel things deeply and, and it was always kind of used as this insult like oh if somebody didn't like the food I used to take it incredibly personally and obviously my chefs would always be like don't take it personally but I put my heart and soul into that dish and of course I'm going to take it personally so yes
0: yes Yes, I so relate to that, Leticia. (laughs) I appreciate you saying that. I think you found your right place in the food world to create these books like this that are deeply personal, because I think that's what it makes it so unique. And it made me laugh multiple times. You know, you talk about being hungover. You you are very um, permissive in the way that people can adjust the recipes and how, and you empower people and I'm glad that you found your place outside of (laughs) professional kitchens (laughs) and you might be you might be blessing even more people this way so
1: I hope so and I hope like one of the things that I think I found so hard about working in kitchens is just you know people don't give you that sense of reassurance because it's it's a stressful environment everybody's in a rush and I think people forget that you know like people need constant reassurance when I think often there's in in what the workplace, there's not this culture of kind of affirmation. There's a culture of kind of criticism and, and rush and stress. And, and I just think it's so wrong, you know, like that you need to encourage people. And I really wanted to encourage people that cooking could be this enjoyable and even relaxing activity. I mean, not always, obviously I get stressed, mm-hmm. when, I, mm-hmm. but I really wanted people to feel reassured that they could make pasta, that they could do this and you Know it's funny because I, you know, I, I kind of had my dad in the back of my head the whole time mm. I was writing instructions because he loves food, but he's not really a kind of competent cook necessarily. But mm. it just takes a few minutes of talking to him and being like, you know, dad, pasta is literally just you know flour and water, and then you just roll it out. And you, you know, even he is after a few minutes like, wow, maybe I, you know, I could make pasta, and I'm like, yeah, you can, you know, anyone can, and I think. Another thing, I mean, I'm just going to like ramble on for ages about professional kitchens. I'm glad. Please do. Keep going. (laughs) I think another thing is that there's this sort of this conspiracy between chefs, because a lot of chefs are Mm. are male. I don't want to generalize and and stereotype too much, but I think there's this sort of machismo which exists in kitchens, which encourages competition and, you know, like, I'm not going to tell you the way that I do something because my way is the best and... And it's just so anti everything that I believe in. And I think this idea that like you can't make pasta because you're not a professional chef, and I make the best pasta, and or it's just it's just ridiculous. And you know, pasta has always been made by Italian women in you know mm-hmm. eighty years old in their home doing it in a relaxed and casual fashion, not some male chef who thinks he's the next Gordon Ramsay or something. It's just. It's totally anti the kind of cooking that I love and the kind of cooking that I want to encourage. So it was important for me that I made things accessible because I really believe that people, everybody should be able to make pasta and and should feel happy and relaxed enough to make pasta. Mm.
0: Mm -hmm. You bring up so many good points here. And you say at one point in your book, you realized what you wanted to be was a home cook. Yeah, I think. And we say it like an insult, but it's the exact opposite.
1: <laughs> exactly. I think, you know, this idea, I, I'm always talking about and thinking about this this differentiation between what, it, what makes a chef and what makes a cook. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the difference, I read a quote from an English writer who I like a lot who said that, you know, chefs do it for money and cooks do it for love. And I feel like, this, I mean, it's not always, Always true because some chefs do obviously love what they do but I think part of that is definitely true and that's the defining difference you know when you're cooking at home you're cooking for your family and people you, you love and or you're cooking because you're really enjoying it when you're cooking in a restaurant you're doing it because you're paid to do it and there's a very different sort of story behind the dishes that you make and I, I felt like by the time I'd finished in professional restaurants, I wasn't making food that I loved. I was just making food that I had to and didn't like the whole like feeling behind it. So,
0: What you just said that chefs cook for money and home cooks do it for love. You know, when I am making a dish for my family, I know exactly what each person likes and how they like it. And I'll maybe over caramelize the onions for one person or say, well, I know he likes them raw and my sister-in-law doesn't like tomatoes. And so if you're writing a cookbook that is based on a love of home cooking, it necessarily has to be a little bit more, gosh, I wish I could think of the word that you gave at some point. You said something like this is more... At different points, you'll say something like, this is more of a suggestion than a recipe. You know, (laughs) when you're writing a book that's about home cooking, you have to give some leeway because the home cook is creating with a specific person or group of people in mind. And P.S., it's okay if that person is yourself. (laughs)
1: Exactly. Yeah cooking for yourself exactly is is self-love it's just as important and Mm. I think it's also one of the things that puts people off cooking a lot is that recipes can feel very bossy and very
0: prescriptive
1: you know if you don't have this this ingredient then there is no way you can possibly make this recipe and I know myself that that drives me you know drives me crazy you know I wanted to, to encourage people to play around a bit and I didn't want to include any recipes that would have you know would have only worked if you had these exact ingredients and I really didn't want to include any recipes that had an ingredient list that was you know 30 or 40 things long because that drives me insane so well you know I want to look at an ingredient list that is about 10 ingredients maximum and I feel safe and I feel like I can achieve that.
0: Yeah. Not without three trips to the store. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I love the direction that this conversation is going in because I feel like you've given us some teasers. What I'd love to do is go back a little bit and just talk about all the experiences that got you to this point that you just showed up in Sardinia and said, well, now I'm going to write a book, (laughs) which is amazing to me. Just amazing to me as someone who's always lived in the same place and hasn't yet achieved some of the dreams that I
1: have I think you should beat yourself up about that I think like I know I mean I have a whole bunch of quotes like written out and pinned on my desk in front of me while I'm working so that I can read them and There was a quote from a famous ballerina who said, You can start late, feel unsure, look different, and still achieve or or to still succeed or something. So, thank you. Thank you for
0: that. (laughs) I want to start with this recipe. This strawberry jam recipe, how how, in what ways does this encapsulate young Letitia? Letitia, who was just starting her journey towards showing up in Sardinia and writing a book.
1: (laughs) So, strawberry jam, I think, is is one of the most important recipes to me in my memory and one of the most important recipes to me because I think um my grandmother used to make me these special pots of of jam she used to she had an amazing fruit and vegetable garden um and she used to grow alpine strawberries which are those tiny very sort of perfumed strawberries and because they're so tiny you know you can only ever make the smallest pot of jam, maybe one a year two year or something. So it was always incredibly special because it was they were so small and then and she would always label it with my nickname, which was Tootie. Um and and it was just really special. And you know, every time I went to see her, she would give me this tiny pot of jam with my nickname on it. And she never made it for anyone else. And it had this flavor because that variety of strawberry is is very kind of specific and it has this very, very sort of flowery, floral flavour. And then you know, growing up throughout my life, I've always I've always loved strawberry jam the most of all of the jams because it is also, you know, one of the most precious because strawberries are expensive and, and mm-hmm. they're only in season for a little while and they can, you know, you can get very bad strawberries and it's mm-hmm. quite difficult to find really good ones. So it has this kind of precious quality. Which yeah. then I spent all of my childhood in Devon, which has this sort of strong culture of cream teas, which is mm-hmm. sort of the only thing that Devon is famous for internationally. And a part of a cream tea is obviously having very good jam with your scone and, and your clotted cream. And the best jam of all is obviously a strawberry jam. So it's always been kind of part of my, my, my own heritage. And then I think, we, you know, when I made it in Sardinia, it was sort of this nice kind of moment where everything kind of came together and I felt like I was at home home but it was also clear that I wasn't at home because I was in some a different place and Mm. it had a slightly different flavor but it was still you know reminiscent of the ones that I knew and it felt like kind of time encapsulated in a little jar so Mm.
0: yeah Mm.
1: um recipe is it's very straightforward but you just macerate the strawberries beforehand with with lots of lemon and sugar and that macerating step I think really enhances the flavor. And it also means that the strawberries are almost semi-cooked. So you then have to cook the jam a lot more time, which means Uh that you preserve the kind of freshness of the flavor of the strawberries.
0: I see. And this is so interesting because... I was wondering if your love of cooking went way back, but I feel like even more deeply than that, it's your love of, you know, you talked about the manifesto of simple, fresh ingredients in this book. And it sounds like from this jam recipe, that is what, I mean, it's, it's, it goes so far back in your life. It's almost like that was inbred in you.
1: It's, yeah, I think, um, you know, like I said, my, my grandma was obviously like sort of first and biggest influence. In my kind of eating and cooking life, and she, she was a passionate gardener, and and even when she lived in a house, because later in life she had to move into a town, uh, because my grandpa was ill and they needed to be near to the doctors. So she moved into a house which didn't really have a big garden, and she still managed to grow lots of potatoes and carrots in little pots, and you know she was always finding a way of doing it, even if it wasn't, even if she didn't have the space or whatever. So it was just really important to her. To have these things and I think you could taste the difference so much I mean I still remember the flavor of you know a potato that she had grown in a little pot outside and the carrots that she used to pull up and she always used to pick them everything quite young because she always said the flavor was better and even though that kind of goes against the the idea that obviously there's more of something if you leave mm-hmm. it for longer you know? Mm -hmm. a carrot gets bigger so you get more yield but she didn't really care like less is more you know you get a tiny carrot but just the one and you'd know that the flavor would be kind of mind-blowing and I think my mum my mum's pretty good at fruit she has a couple of fruit bushes and rhubarb and um, fruit trees and stuff so it's always been kind of part of of my life I've been lucky really lucky to have kind of fruit and vegetables that have been grown nearby or at home and I did live for, until I was fifteen, in this house with a sort of orchard, which was amazing. Now I think about it, but it, back then it was just we used to do the apple picking every autumn. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> if it's it okay, was, I I want to read this quote that you <laughs> that you wrote because this I'm I'm curious. I'm curious if I misread it. I read this. You know, I grew up in Devon in a farmhouse with an orchard, and I thought. <gasps> Like, that would be my Sardinia. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I would go to a farmhouse in Devon and write a book about... But then you finish it with an orchard full of decrepit apple trees. (laughs) Autumns were spent picking apples for my father to turn into a lethal cider or to be boiled into a wobbling amber jelly. (laughs) (laughs) And then you write, again, this is the beginning of your manifesto. I learned then what I still believe now, that often the best things in life are the simplest, like an apple picked from the tree. So I am curious about, it seems so ideal, but it almost seems like for you, it didn't quite feel right at the time. Or was it you were just a child and everybody chafes and yearns to go to the next thing? Or did I misread it?
1: No, no, no. I think um, I see what you're saying. Um, And I think one of the reasons that I used the words that were a bit sort of more, um, I guess, not negative necessarily, but and actually I had a conversation with my mum about this. My mum does do quite a lot of reading of my work thankfully, because I trust her opinion. And she's a very avid reader. And, you know, she's articulate and clever. So I sort of I always send her things that I'm writing. And, and I sent her the first paragraph, and she was like, it's all a bit too perfect. I think it's important that you show that, you know, this was a very real place. It's not this sort of dreamy orchard. But, you know, my childhood was, in many ways, idyllic, but it wasn't, you know, by any means perfect, because there's no such thing. So I think that's why I used some of those words that are a little more kind of a bit less perfect kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that was part of the reason that I used those words. And my dad did make really bad cider. I mean, it wasn't like <laughs> <laughs> He always forgot and left everything too long and it was always exploding and it was always really sour and horrible. So like it was, it was fun. and But it, it was just important to me that it wasn't this kind of perfect dreamy world because mm-hmm. I think more than anything, you know, I want to be kind of real and authentic. And
0: I appreciate that.
1: And then... I guess everybody always has that sense of kind of the grass being greener on the other side and and Italy has this kind of romantic feel, which, I mean, it's there for a reason. There is, you know, Italian culture and Italian food and the Italian way of life is very appealing and attractive for many reasons, you know, not least because of the weather, um, which is obviously a huge improvement on sort of British weather. But I think, I've always been fascinated by travel and I'm learning from other people, from other cultures, eating different foods from different places. And I've sort of, part of me always feels like I'll end up in Devon at the end. But I think I wanted to, to break out of it a bit because everybody at some point finds the place where they grow up a bit stifling or maybe a bit limited. You know, I mean, I went to London because that's where the jobs were. But I just knew that I didn't want to be in London long term because I'm not really a big city person. But by the time that I met Luca, you know, I was ready to move away. And I said to him, you know, we could do we could go back to Devon and open something. And he said, Well, you know, what what am I gonna do in Devon? Let's try Sardinia. And that's kind of how it happened.
0: Well, it's interesting because whenever I invite a guest onto the podcast, the universal response is well, my story is not that interesting, <laughs> um, and I think that it's the same with home. Home is just home, and we might remember it with some nostalgia, but yeah. it's still everyday to us.
1: Yeah, and it's only when you when you move away that you then come to appreciate it.
0: Mm. So, give us like the stops along the way.
1: So I went. I went to university, mm. and I studied. English literature but I was always sort of torn between art and English because I my other passion was always drawing or painting so I ended up choosing English because I thought at least I'll be able to find a job so it seemed the more practical and sensible option so Mm -hmm. I chose (laughs) I chose English literature and then I graduated and I had no idea what to do Um, and I sort of knew that I wanted to write but I wasn't really sure what I was going to write about. I didn't really have a sort of subject. I was mm. sort of very vague about the whole thing. Mm. So I thought, well, I'll go and find some experience, and then I'll, <laughs> I'll write about it afterwards. So I sort of started working in a in a pub just as a waitress because it's you know kind of what everyone does when they don't know what else to do. Like, I realised that. I was being really nosy about what was going on in the pub, in the kitchen because of it. it was very nice food. And I was kind of talking to the chef a lot and asking him how he would make this or what he would do with that. And eventually they lost the chef in the kitchen and the chef said to me, well, you're you know interested. Why don't you come in and move into the kitchen and, and help me out instead? So mm. I, I moved into the kitchen and started working as his sort of sous chef. I mean, having not done anything before other than sort of home cooking, but I learned quite a lot there with him. And then I decided that I'd sort of saved up some money by this point. And I decided that I wanted to train properly. So I went to cookery school, to Leith's Cookery School in London. Um, and I did this sort of professional diploma there, which mm. was an amazing experience. And I learned a lot. It's very kind of classical French food, but it's, mm. you know, all the basics are covered. And it was a great experience. And and then after that, I went to work in my first restaurant, which was in London. Um, and I realized a few months in, maybe six months in, I suddenly thought, I don't know if I'm cut out for this because service was really, really intense. And mm. I was always crying. I mean, I found I found it so <laughs> difficult mm. and so stressful. And I was terrible at dealing with the stress. And I just used to cry during service all the time. Um, and, people, you know, I would get, because it was an open kitchen as well so customers would sort of walk past and see the chef kind of crying oh. and it, was, <laughs> it was really embarrassing and my head, was just, <laughs> my, head oh. my head didn't really know what to do he was a bit like oh god could you stop crying in front of the customers please but I, I just found it really really I mean some people can do it easily and I have like incredible admiration for people that do it but I was just I found the whole thing so stressful And really kind of upsetting. I decided I didn't think I was cut out for it, so I decided to go back and study. And I went back to study. I did a master's in English literature, and I was working in a restaurant while I was studying because it was a sort of part-time thing. So I was still doing the chefing, but in a less intense environment, in a cafe rather than in a restaurant. So I was doing sort of morning morning shifts in the cafe, and then I would go and do my lectures. And so I did my master's in English, and then I. I actually went to work in publishing for a bit because obviously I love books, and I worked in publishing for about two or three years. And I just realised that I wasn't—I also wasn't really cut out for office life because I—I I love talking and I love joking, and I just didn't really want to sit in silence all the time. And everybody in in a publishing office you know, is very busy, kind of reading or editing, and nobody talks. And I found that you know I i was used to this kitchen environment where everybody is chatty and casual and 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 even if it's stressful you know you also have a lot of fun you laugh a lot as well and I found the office environment really quiet and I've I thought I don't know if I'm cut out for office life (laughs) either (laughs) so then I was sort of I was in my last office job and uh, my best friend from cookery school called me and she said we're opening a restaurant and I said you know how I feel about being a chef and she said well it will be different. This one will be different. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Um, how did she promise you it would be different? She was like, we're going to have good hours and there's going to be showers and changing rooms. And, and, you know, previously when I'd worked in the first restaurant, it was mixed changing rooms. It wasn't even a, a real changing room. It was just a sort of cupboard where you had to change in front of the boys. And it was really stinky and horrible. And then that was obviously part of being a chef for everybody. But... You know, she said, oh, this place, we're going to have showers and we're going to have single sex changing rooms and we're going to have decent hours and we're going to have air conditioning and we're going to have amazing food. And it's going to be this kind of dream restaurant. Mm -hmm. So she persuaded me and I signed up and I went off to be the head baker there because by that point I'd been experimenting a lot with bread and I'd done some work experience with some bakers and stuff. So I went off to be head baker at that restaurant and then I stayed for three years there and I sort of moved around so I was a pastry chef and I was a baker and then I was on the hot on the hots and the salads and stuff as well. I moved around there. Mm. And then I went to, <laughs> I finished there, I went to work in another restaurant, I finished there, I went to work in another restaurant. Eventually in the last restaurant that I worked in, um I met this guy Luca
0: mm.
1: who was Sardinian who is Arunin. Um, and we were, we were sort of friends initially, and then we became a couple. And then we were talking about what we would do next, and I had just turned 30, and I was having that sort of crisis that you have when you turn 30 again, <laughs> when I was like, oh, my God, I need to change my life, and I've been a chef for too long, and I want to write, and I want to do this, and I want to set up on my own, and I can't live in London anymore, and I don't want to do this anymore, and blah, 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 and... And that's when we decided to move to Sudden. The rest is history, as
0: they say. Mm. So it's interesting. I really enjoyed hearing that story because I think I felt like maybe the pressures of working in the restaurant had extinguished this flame, you know, this love for cooking that you had. But as I listen and understand a little bit better, it's as if you really had these two flames all along the cooking but also the writing and the two had to come together they just had to for you to feel satisfied
1: yeah I think that's probably right and I think I was always saying to myself you know when I have days off or time off I'll do some painting or do some writing or do the thing the other things that I I really want to do but you know, the days off that you have, you're so tired. Like you never do anything. You just end up yeah. sleeping, or you kind of I don't know, spend the day watching Netflix, or you're yeah. it's just so physically exhausting that you never end up having energy or time to do anything else. So and I did try for the last kitchen job I did, I, I tried to cut down my hours so it was more of a sort of part-time kitchen job, and then I would try and do the writing on the side and I had a little market stall as well where I was trying to sell some of my food and some of my drawings. So I was always trying to sort of balance everything, but it was just really hard to to be able to fit everything in with the sort of limited time that you know we have every day to try and do all of those things it was almost impossible. So I've, I feel really lucky and happy that I've managed to kind of get to a point where I have a, a bit of a balance, but there is still, I mean, there's still so many more things that I want to do. So
0: Of course, of course. Yes, yes. You know, you said, well, let me go off and get some experience and find something to write about. Well, your plan worked. (laughs) It did work and you got to do what you set out to do, um, which is enviable and wonderful and exciting and inspiring. And I'm happy for you for that. Thank you. And and excited to see what comes next. So I'm curious, do you think you know, like you said, you were just always trying to do this and it could just never come together. You know, there was always the plan for the next week you would have time, but the time was never there, um, to fully commit to integrating all of these gifts and talents that you have. You talk in your book a lot about the way of life in Sardinia and, Of course, also, it was just a massive change. I mean, you left everything behind to move to Sardinia. Do you think you could have gotten to this point without making such a major move and particularly without a move to a culture that has values that are so different that you really could slow down? Like, could this have been written? Subject matter aside, could this ever have been written in England?
1: Um, well, I think that's another another really good question. And, and I think, actually, the funny thing is that even though, you know, I do talk about the Sardinian way of life a lot, sorry, um, and I do admire the Sardinian way of life, and I try to sort of aspire to it, I'm not actually very good yes. at relaxing. yes right 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 Um, exactly yeah and it's one of the things that Luca and I used to sort of fight about the most is that Luca is a brilliant relaxer (laughs) he is is the king of relaxation and he used to find well he still finds me annoying I mean we're still friends so we still see each other and chat and everything and he he finds it incredibly annoying that I can just never relax and I don't know if it's being English or being a woman or being from my family or just my, my own nature or whatever it is, but I am almost incapable of relaxing. And I think something that Sardinia is, has has helped me to do is to relax a bit more. And also the summer, I mean, part of the reason that this way of life exists is because it is so hot for so long in the summer. That it's just not possible to do anything. It really isn't. Like you can't, you can't cook. You can't go out. You can't do anything. It's just unbearably hot, and people just sit around inside and talk about how hot it is. You know, for, for <laughs> six years, if that's just what happens. Um, so I think that kind of has changed me a bit, and I think this enjoyment of summer because when I lived in England summer didn't really mean anything to me it was just kind of another season that you carried on living the same life that you'd lived the rest of the year but and I think this year this is my third summer in Sardinia and it's I've I've got better at enjoying it and actually going to the beach. And I still can't spend longer than a couple of hours lying around. I find it really (laughs) difficult. And I can also have a proper lunch, which I never used to do when I lived in London. I used to skip lunch or I would snack or I would eat something kind of on the run. And now I do always make sure I sit down and have a proper lunch of at least a sort of half an hour, an hour. Um, And that's something that Luca and Sardinia has definitely given me. So I think Sardinia has given me the lunch break, which I love, and it's given me aperitivo, which I also love, this kind mm. of sitting down and having a nice drink before you eat your, your dinner is another really nice thing about Italian life. So I do love those things, but I still wouldn't say that I'm someone that can kind of enjoy relaxing the same way that like Luca can enjoy relaxing. It's just not, mm. it's not in my nature. <laughs> Yeah, I really don't know if that's because I'm English or because I'm just me or I have no idea where it yeah.
0: comes from. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, my husband and I were talking this morning about COVID and how it's changed us and our family. You know, we're both driven, ambitious people. We have four kids. Um we have a lot of obligations and having some of those stripped away, you know, we didn't even realize the tremendous pressure that we were under as a family until the pressure was relieved. Like, so you weren't able personally to relax, but when you left England and this whole kitchen environment, (laughs) (laughs) it's like you had the space to just breathe and to try something. And there's a... um, it's not maybe so much always about the time that you put into a project as the time to think about it, to dream about it, to plan for it. I'm just wondering if Sardinia gave you that space. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, no, completely, I totally understand what you're saying. And I think that's right. And it's also, realistically, it is also financial pressure. And I think the fact that in Sardinia, you know, you can live pretty well for very little. I mean, it's much easier to, to lead a pretty good life on a much smaller budget and that was one of the things that I found hardest about London was that mm. in order to survive I had to be doing a full-time job because otherwise I simply couldn't have paid for myself you know I couldn't have paid my rent I couldn't have paid my food I couldn't have paid for my travel so there was no chance that I could take a step back and and yeah. dream about writing, writing a novel because I just wouldn't have been able to cope financially so
0: yeah yeah I
1: think that was another thing that was a real release and cut you know when when we moved here i actually lived with lucas family for the first year so Uh. i I was completely relieved of kind of financial pressure in terms of rent because rent in london is is huge you know i was paying the 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 major part of my salary just in in renting a room not even an apartment you know just a room so um, that was a major help. And that was part of the reason that I was so sort of attached to his family and grateful as well, because they gave me that kind of opportunity to live mm. with them, which is not easy. I mean, living with your in-laws is not is not something. It's no. <laughs> at all easy. Um, but, that you know, like we had a good relationship and I, I was very happy to be there for a while. But, you know, obviously, I didn't want it to be the long-term solution. But it did give me, that, from that aspect, I definitely felt freer. And then I also think one of the things that, apart from the slightly more relaxed lifestyle and that financial freedom, is that Luca, I think I say in the acknowledgements, like without him, you know, I would have never got my ass into gear or whatever. And I think mm-hmm. he's, you know, Sardinians are very direct, just sort of famously so. And I think <laughs> <laughs> he just couldn't understand my fears and my worries and my doubts because I think I sort of grew up being pretty repressed probably you know like a lot of English people and
0: me too yeah Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) constantly apologizing and, and feeling guilty for being the way I was or for doing this or for doing that and I think Luca just did not comprehend any of that and you know when I said it's my dream to write he would just say well just write then and I would mm. and I'd be like no oh, but you don't understand you know like people might not like it and maybe it's a waste of time and it might not be good and he was like it's your dream just do it um mm. and I think that was just like incredibly liberating for me as well mm. because and I remember the very first few drafts I would show to Luca and he doesn't necessarily read in English. It's, his English is pretty good conversationally, but he would never read a book in English. So mm-hmm. I'd have to put it in Google translate and translate it into Italian. And then I could give him little excerpts and he'd read it and he'd just be laughing to himself. And, <laughs> and obviously, I mean, he loves the bits about himself the most. He's always, yeah. like, <laughs> <laughs> He's always asking me to read him the bits that are just about him. But he, like you know he really liked it and he was like it's good keep going keep going it's good and I think without that kind of encouragement and without his very kind of uncluttered mindset you know just if you want to do something just do it um mm. without that I would have probably never done it so I do mm. you know, the book is very much also a tribute to Luca and to his kind of idea that if you want to do something, you really just get out and do it and stop kind of making excuses. So
0: Mm, mm. yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. I think what I've done is I've kind of like subconsciously been asking you for a roadmap to achieving (laughs) your dreams (laughs) for people listening. That's, I think that's where these questions are coming from. And, you know, I think, if I'm going to be that blunt about it, you have made some really good practical points, you know, just this idea of somehow the financial burden has to be relieved to the point that you can really pursue this. And then it's just as much like you said, that mental and emotional burden.
1: Yeah, I think it's partly being like a woman. I don't know how many of your lists are women, but I think a lot of this idea that we need to apologize and and be sort of, in the background, rather than in the foreground, and like I mean, there's so much literature written about this now, and it's great that it's really being highlighted. But I do think a lot of it is is feeling like you have to sort of you know not be that kind of forceful woman because it's it's seen as being very unattractive and also very unfeminine. Which is I go on for hours about feminism, so let's not even go down that road. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think it's sort of ingrained in that was really, and also, you know, a financial thing, you know, people like Virginia Woolf was writing about this a hundred years ago, you know, she needed financial security and her own room in order to write books. And that was just a simple practical fact behind it. You know, art is a creative process, but it comes out of a practical reality, which is that you need space and money and time to be able to do it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And all the memes about she believed she could, so she did, it's not enough right? I mean, it wasn't enough when you were there working kitchen jobs and trying to go to school and try to, it wasn't enough. There was not enough money to give you the time to do it.
1: Yeah, There's a
0: practical aspect to it that I think that we all do need to acknowledge, Um, especially those of us, you know, that are in privileged positions. That's a privilege. And I think that it's a disservice to not admit that
1: and no I think that in that sort of now more so than ever you know in in all of these things you're not helping anyone by pretending you know like you help people by being honest about things and if you come forward and say look I can only make this work because I have a husband who helps me financially or I have a situation which is alleviating these financial concerns or whatever like that makes people feel reassured and also inspired and I'd I'd I'm not interested in making people feel inadequate or making mm. people feel jealous or, you know, that's not part of what I want to do. What I want to do is to make f- people feel reassured and encouraged, you know? So I do think mm. it's really, really important to be, that's the way that I have found most encouragement and inspiration is reading people that have been honest about their own kind of journey. So
0: mm. I appreciate that. And I do think that that desire, again, that comes through so clearly in your book that you are an encouraging, open, authentic, transparent person. I really do think that's part of the reason that I fell in love with the book um, and that I'm enjoying this conversation so much. So (laughs) thank you. Well, also, as we talk about kind of the birth of this book, how soon were you there before you realized this is the subject I've been waiting for or had you written other books before?
1: Well, I've been writing this sort of memoir. yes (laughs) ever since i started working in kitchens basically i started Mm. putting notes down for this book so it's been good it's been on the go for about 10 years but it's
0: Mm.
1: i i just have no idea how to make it a sort of coherent thing i mean it's literally just pages and pages of notes and and anecdotes and quotes and i mean i've got no idea how it will ever form into something but i really hope that at some point it will because it's kind of been there for so long so I've always written, you know, bits and bobs, but I've never I guess when I arrived in Sardinia, I carried on working in a kitchen. We did the first summer season at Lucas Parents. They've got a little sort of campsite with a restaurant attached, and I and we did weddings and it was sort of busy the whole season. So I did that, but then after that, and before I actually got the job as a teacher, I decided that it was time that I was trying. So I was I was doing a lot of illustration illustration as well I was selling quite a lot of illustrations online doing commissions and stuff and mm-hmm. I was starting to turn my illustrations into cards and prints and stuff but I knew that I was I wanted to write something else when I decided to move I got in touch with a publisher who I'd worked for who's sort of my muse or my kind of maestro I guess or for, for books he, he's just mm-hmm. got an incredibly wide knowledge and he knows about it, almost everything and I always ask his advice if I'm looking for something specific so I I wrote to him and I said, well, I'm moving to Sardinia and I really would like some recommendations of what I could read. And he sort of sent a list and, you know, it was about two books long because there are literally only about two books that have ever been written about Mm. Sardinia. And I thought, well, this is just crazy that, like, there's this amazing place that nobody seems to know about and nobody has even written about. So I also felt like, well, there's a massive gap, you know, in in the sort of, in the literature of of Sardinia it feels a shame that nobody had written much about it and Luca that was another thing that Luca was very kind of passionate about he was like you need to write about Sardinia because people don't know about it Mm -hmm. there was sort of a few things that came in together and then I obviously knew that I'd always known that I wanted to write so it seemed that that was the thing to start writing because it was sort of missing. I did feel like a huge weight of responsibility because mm. Luca was there like, no one has ever written about Sardinia. You must write about Sardinia. And, and I was kind of this, obviously, like tourist and definitely You're Right. <laughs> a foreigner, and I didn't really know anything when I began. I tried to do a lot of research, but again, like it's very hard to research something when there are no books about it. So,
0: right. This is very interesting to me because, first of all, like you mentioned, so much of the younger generation is moving away. It's almost like you've come in as an outsider and compiled something that then you can give back. You give to us out in the world, but you can also give back to this island and to this younger generation as almost a um, a primer, you know, on their own <laughs> culture, maybe that they didn't take the time to learn, you know, um, yeah. but I but I am curious if. You say you felt pressure as an outsider. Do you think the book is more or less authentic because you're an outsider? And then also, you talk a lot in this book and about releasing ourselves from the burden of authenticity. So maybe can you talk about those two together and whatever makes sense to you?
1: <laughs> you know, one of the nicest reviews that I had from the book actually was in Italy magazine, and and journalist wrote that Bitter Honey was a really nice example of. of the light that a foreigner can shed on on a local tradition you know which but I think there are certain things that you see as a, as a foreigner that maybe you don't see as a local the same way that yeah. we talk about taking things for granted when you grow up in a place you know yeah. like like as an ex-English person you know as a sort of expat I can definitely yeah. see things about England that I didn't see when I lived there and I think that position of being outside of something does give you a different perspective which can bring to light different things so I think in a way, it can be an advantage, but more than that, I just felt like there was this huge weight of responsibility to, to create something that was a sort of huge and authentic compendium of every single Sardinian recipe and, and tradition and, and dish and ingredient because, I mean, that would be a lifetime's work and you would still mm. never finish. So I think for me it was also necessary to, to be very open and honest about the fact that I am not portraying this book as Mm -hmm. the ultimate guide to Sardinian food, because that's, it's not what it is. This Mm -hmm. book is is a sort of representation of the life that I have had in Sardinia, the people that I have met, the recipes that I have cooked, not even recipes that are necessarily cooked by Sardinians, recipes that I have made in Sardinia with Sardinian ingredients. Mm -hmm. You know, I think one of the things that is really interesting about um, Nigella Lawson, who's sort of one of my heroines of food writing (laughs) she's written a sort of Italian inspired cookbook called Nigelissima in the introduction to that she talks about like this idea of authenticity and and the fact that first of all you have to be authentic to yourself and if and if this Mm. is the way that you cook then this is the way that you should write about cooking you know why Mm. I mean the whole point is this is your kitchen this is the way you do it and Mm. and that that's true authenticity being authentic to yourself first of all so that was more important to get across that these are the dishes that I cook. You know, this idea that there is true authenticity is is pretty difficult anyway, because one person changes it or changes one tiny ingredient or whatever. Is that still authentic? You know, I think it's fruitless to try and pursue this ideal.
0: I yeah. so appreciate that perspective. And also the way that as long as you're transparent about what your experience is, what your goals are, then what you do is necessarily authentic, right? Exactly. It's authentic. Yeah. This is something I'm going to be pondering for a long time. I appreciate this, <laughs> Letitia. <laughs>
1: I think this is what I sort of always come back to with the, the, the final book that I will finally write at some point is that like food, cooking is such a, a great metaphor for life you know if you have to be authentic you have to be yourself first and it's just, you know it's true in life so i think mm. that is one of the things that i love about food is that it does kind of encapsulate everything else about life
0: and that's certainly something that the listeners of this show agree on as well so- so let's just wrap up by hearing a little bit about what you are. You know, you talk about this memoir. What are you working on now? What are your days full of now? And then also tell everyone how to find your watercolors and, <laughs> and of course, your book, Bitter Honey.
1: So now I am working on a second cookbook, which is a bit like Bitter Honey in that it's sort of Italian based, but this time um, not 100% Sardinian. It's a bit kind of broader with re- recipes from other places in Italy that I've visited since I moved here and that I've read about. And and it's all sweet things because I have a huge sweet tooth and I used to be, when I worked in restaurants, I I was a pastry chef, a long part of that. So all of these recipes that I've sort of made in restaurants and then tried here and I felt like I'm an avid collector of cookbooks and there didn't seem to be very many sort of sweet Italian cookbooks. So I kind of wanted to, to fill that gap then I've, in the back of my mind, I've got this memoir, which I'm trying to, I mean, I set myself by the time I was 33, which was last May. So I'm now way behind to get that published. But I'm hoping that I will get something confirmed by my next birthday. So by next May, I really hope to have something fixed for that. And the second sweet cookbook, which is called La Vita Dolce, is out next summer and the summer and end of spring early summer next year yeah I, I really hope that i can finally have a party as well because of covid we've never mm. had a party and i didn't get to sign any books and i haven't been into a single bookshop and seen the book in a shop so it's all been pretty strange and surreal but you know this is just the way it is at the moment so oh
0: yeah. there's all these little bosses that none of us kind of know about each other what was that You know that thing that somebody lost. Of course, you. That's so. Oh, that's so disappointing.
1: I mean, the the lockdown, the kind of timing was just crazy because I had this whole tour for the book um, completely booked. You know, I was flying to England. I was going to go to bookshops. I was going to sign books. I was going to see my family. We were going to have a party. We were going to do all this stuff, and then, um, and it was all in the run up to my birthday as well. And then there was Easter and. So I had this kind of whole three months of, of really exciting, busy stuff. And then obviously just everything wiped out. But I mean, you know, everybody has had their lives put on hold. So it's just it's just the way it is.
0: Well, I had a huge smile on my face as you described these next two books that you're putting out. I'm sure they're going to be incredibly well received. Thank you so much again for being so generous with your time. I just think people are going to love Hearing about this and the authentic you really does come through in everything you do. And I, every people respond to that. I appreciate it so much.
1: Well, thank you so much for all of your brilliant questions and for being a brilliant
0: interview. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're very kind. You're very kind. Okay. Well, I will let you go. You have a wonderful day. Okay, Letitia.
1: Thank you. You too. And thanks for all the kind words about the book as well. It's really, I really appreciate it.
0: Of course. Take care. Uh, Bye-bye. Thank you so, so much, Letitia. As I told her, I could have chatted for hours more. And lucky for you, there is so much more you can learn about Letitia and Luca and Luca's family and Sardinia through her book, Bitter Honey. There's a link to that and her website on, of course, thestoriedrecipe.com. P.S. I'm not an Amazon affiliate. I will not receive anything for sharing Letitia's work. I would just love for you to enjoy it the way I did. In the meantime, I would appreciate your support of this podcast by sharing the episode with friends and family by email or on social media. Thank you and have a great week, my friends.